Glad you are with us today. Lots of good things happening today. Really, it seems like every week there's something really great happening, but glad that you're here with us to worship, and I know we have several guests today and even a group from the University of Houston, and we're glad that you're with us also from the point there. And uh, today we celebrate that God has brought us all together, and what a great thing that is. I hope you're staying for the lunch afterwards. If you're not, just to buzz through and see some of the tables over in the family center would be a great thing to do. And we're not just interested in folks here, we're interested in people from all over the world in different places. And this week, on Wednesday, Kirk Eason is leading a group of folks, 17 or 18 people, four from here, will be going to, uh, be going to South Africa. Two of our elders, Philip Bailey and Frank Devine, and then also Mary Shanks, are all going. They're going to teach teachers how to teach, they're going to teach elders, they're going to teach preachers, they're going to do all kinds of great things while they're in South Africa, and I am so thankful for that work, for those who go abroad and you see our flags where we celebrate and help and try to share the message of Jesus. But we also want to share it right here. If God brings the world to us, then there is a responsibility on our shoulders to share the good news of Jesus. Sometimes, sometimes I talk about this, and I pray it never happens, but you know in, in the book of Acts, the church was growing so fast there in the beginning, and then all at once there was, there was the persecution, and they scattered. And they took Jesus with them when they scattered. And I pray that we never have a time like that happens. But if we do, wouldn't it be better that we scattered with Jesus than without Jesus? We want to do everything we can to teach others to know Christ. And we want to be humble and realize we have so much more to learn as well. Today we're ending our series about being in the desert. I, when I start a series, I kind of don't always know how long it's going to go because I kind of go until you're tired of it, is what I try to do. But I realized I could preach the rest of my life on the desert because the whole Bible's in the desert, right? So we're going to leave the desert for a while. After this week, we're going to talk about becoming like Jesus in the next few weeks. But today we're talking about salvation in an unlikely place which you've already guessed it in the desert, and you heard Nashad's reading this morning as he tells that story about the spirit told Philip to go into the desert, you remember, and then there was that Ethiopian, an Ethiopian eunuch that was on his chariot, and he's told to go talk to him. And so today we pick up this story, this true story, in Acts chapter 8, in verses 30 and 31, where the Bible says, Then Philip ran up to the chariot, and he heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. Well, how can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about? Himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news of Jesus. This is a great passage of Scripture to learn how Jesus is active, how the Spirit is active, how Philip was active in sharing and telling others about Jesus and about the heart of this Ethiopian to know Jesus. But I want us to stop and think about this Ethiopian for just a minute and what the life was like for this Ethiopian man. 
Now, he has traveled, if he is from Ethiopia or Cush, sometimes that Cush is an ancient nation, but from that same area, he would have traveled to get to Jerusalem 1,500 miles to be there to worship. Now, I know stories, for example, I heard about how my, my grandparents went from northern Kansas to northern Oklahoma in a covered wagon. Some of your parents probably came from some other part of the country in a covered wagon to get to, to south Texas. And, but it probably wasn't 1,500 miles when he's not on a chariot. <clears throat> when I imagine a chariot, I imagine something from Ben-Hur or Gladiator or some movie like that. This is more like a wagon that you would travel in. Can you imagine how many days it's been that he's been on this and if there's an entourage with him? And all this is happening is, is he has to go there and then he goes home again. This is a serious undertaking. He's a government official. The Bible tells us that right away. I mean, he is an Ethiopian eunuch. Probably his job is protecting the queen or it's protecting the treasury or whatever it may have been. He served Candace. Now, Candace is not a specific name of a queen, but instead Candace is like the name of a dynasty or like a family, like Tudor, for example, in England that, that you've heard of. And so he serves this Candace dynasty and whoever the queen was at the time. And he's gone all that way to Jerusalem to worship, the Bible says. That is a long way to go. It appears he is not Jewish, but he may be a, he's obviously a, very sympathetic toward Judaism, and he wants to be there. And some of you also know this of what the temple looked like. You would have had the place where the sacrifice was in the middle, where the priests were, sometimes called the court of priests. Out from that, you had the court of men, and the Jewish men would come to this area. And then there would be a place that was even larger and farther out called the court of women, and the Jewish women would go to that area. Then there would be another area, and it would be called the court of Gentiles. The world had two races, as far as was understood in, in Israel. It was, you were either Jewish or Gentile, which meant if you were not Jewish, you are Gentile. And so you couldn't go in if you were a Gentile any farther than this court of Gentiles. It would be like watching me speak without a microphone, hearing the songs this morning, and standing over at the high school across the street. That's what it would be like. So you're really not seeing very much. Not only that, there was a wall around the court of Gentiles. And the wall was fairly high, but then it had a lattice work there. And you would be looking through the lattice as to see what was happening. And there was a sign. Some of you have seen one of those signs because archaeologists have discovered, have discovered at least one sign that said, if you are a Gentile and you pass this place, this wall, you will be killed. Can you imagine if we put a sign like that about halfway up, it, you will be killed? Now, early service, we'd have to put it at the back because everybody sits at the back. So we'd have to say, no, you've got to all come down to the front. And so you can imagine what this is like. And not only that, in the court of Gentiles is the area where Jesus would have gone and told the money changers, turned over their tables and said, you're making this into a den of robbers. You're not doing at all what it was intended for. Because in the court of Gentiles, what was happening there is you have these money changers. And people would come with their gold coins to give to God. And let's just use American money as an example. You'd say, I've got my dollar coin here that I'm going to give to God. And these money changers would say, well, you see, we're experts, and your coin is not quite right. 
and therefore, if you pay me a dollar fifty, I can give you the proper dollar coin. They are making money off all these Jewish pilgrims that are coming. And so then they would say, well, they would, they would be selling their animals out in the court of Gentiles. And there would be lambs and goats and bulls and all those things there to, to sell. And you would have prepared yours back at home and you're ready to sell your, you're ready to give your lamb to God that was to be unblemished. And these robbers, so to speak, would say, oh, well, I see a little blemish on your lamb. You'd say, well, I don't see anything there. Nope, it's right here. No, I don't see anything. It's a pure lamb. Nope. It's not. I see that. Then he'd call over his buddy. Hey, come over here. Come over here, Judas, and look for me. Do you see anything? Oh, yeah, I see that too. Yep, yep, right there. No, move over here. It's right there, right? Yeah, that's it. And so now they're going to sell you an animal to sacrifice. And so now they're just taking advantage of people, and there's all this conversation and talking that's going on around you. I mean, it's, there's no way to hear. It's like going down to the rodeo and standing there in the, in, in the middle of the, of the place where all the rides are and trying to hear a worship service and be a part of it at the same time. It would have been terrible, but he has gone 1,500 miles to that. That's where he's been to worship. But now this man, it appears he obviously has money himself or he is allowed to look at things that the queen owns as in a, in a manuscript or to have a scroll of the book of Isaiah. Now we also know this man is, is, is smart. He's really smart. And he's educated. How do you know that? Because he reads. And he probably reads out loud. Now, hardly anybody read during the first century was able to. Only usually the elite, only those were educated. And whenever they did, until about the 10th century, people read out loud. They didn't stay silent at their desk and read. If you were to read, everybody would start reading out loud. And so Philip says, why are you reading? What are you reading? Well, I'm reading Isaiah. How can I understand it unless someone shares it with me? He is reading what is known as the fourth servant song you say well i've never heard of the fourth servant song well it's it's there are four songs starting in isaiah 42 goes through isaiah 53 here and there are four different songs that are prophecies about maybe it's a double prophecy we'll talk about some other day but talking about jesus and this one goes from isaiah 52 verse 13 to isaiah 53 verse 12 it's nice those numbers kind of fit together for us and you can read those it's what we read just a minute ago and we're part of, and it is a psalm about the suffering of the Messiah. It says that the Savior of the world, the other word for Savior is Messiah, the Savior of the world, the Messiah of the world is going to suffer. You remember what he read. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter as a lamb before its shears is silent. He picks up, okay, who is this man that is being led to the slaughter? Is this Isaiah? Or is it someone else? And Philip right there, by the power of the Holy Spirit, Philip right there explains to him, it's not Isaiah, it is Jesus. It is Jesus. That this is all about him. And those four songs are about him, they're prophecies. This is Jesus that is being proclaimed. Can you imagine what that moment is like when this man who is at what is considered the end of the earth as far as Jews were concerned, Ethiopia was the end of the earth, this man is hearing about Jesus for the first time. This is an incredible moment. You can just, I can almost imagine the the hair standing up on his arms as he's hearing this and saying, you mean there's hope, you mean there's, there's salvation, all these things. And I just think about 
how this man related to Jesus and all that was going on. You know, he would have just seen multiple sacrifices. And may I say, not just seen, but smelled multiple sacrifices. These animals are being offered for sin offerings, but at the same time, by this point, it's not all about worshiping God. It's For a lot of people, it's about padding pockets is what's going on. These animals aren't being sacrificed because they need the food, not being sacrificed because they're going to use the, the hides to make tents or, or clothes or whatever. And I've read so many different estimates as to how many animals would be sacrificed. The most conservative estimate that I've read is there would be 600 a day sacrificed. The most I've heard is in the hundreds of thousands would be sacrificed. Whatever it was, taking 600, you can imagine what it's like that day and what the Ethiopian has seen through the lattice and what he has smelled that, is, that has filled the air. And he's standing there, and I wonder if he thought like I would, when will it end? When will this be over? Lamb after lamb, sacrifice to God. Bull after bull. When will this finally end? I can just think about how this man connects to Jesus, and I think about in that passage we read on the PowerPoint earlier, where it says, in his humiliation, he, Jesus, was deprived of justice. He was scorned. He was humiliated. Can you imagine how this Ethiopian eunuch would relate to humiliation from other people? And now here he is finding out that the Messiah of the world that the Messiah went through those same kind of experiences of humiliation and having people not give him what he deserved or what, what should have been his. All at once, he's connecting here to Jesus as this is being read. And now he's wondering, when will all this end, all these sacrifices? And while the rest of the New Testament isn't written at this point, I have to think that Philip certainly knew because the Spirit wouldn't have sent him, but he certainly understood and certainly knew the Scripture, and he teaches him from that point. And what we learn from the book of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 4 through 8, and then verse 10, I, I've divided it, I left out a verse only for space, says it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. All those that they're doing all day, it is impossible. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me with burnt offerings and sin, and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, Jesus said, here I am. It is written about me in, this, in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. This is Jesus saying, yes, I am here to be the offering. There is no need for, that, that Philip could say to that man that day, to the Ethiopian, there is no need for those bulls and goats to be sacrificed anymore. All that's in the past. It doesn't need any of that because the sacrifice has been made. Jesus has been sacrificed on the cross for our sins, the perfect one, the perfect lamb, sacrificed, the one who never sinned, and he didn't stay dead. This is the most incredible part. He was resurrected from the grave. He still lives, 
Then he goes on and he says, And by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. It is through that sacrifice that we're holy today. You say, well, I'm not very holy. You're not very holy. I'm not very holy. Except through the blood of Jesus that makes us holy. Now that is good news, folks. That means we have hope. So he goes on in Acts chapter 8, and we finish this out in verses 36 through 39. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, here's water. What, what can stand in the way of me being baptized? Now I want you to stop and hear this for just a minute. I love the way this version puts this. What stands in the way of me being baptized? When he's back there in the temple, and he's in the court of Gentiles, and the sacrifice is happening up here, way up there, there is a wall between him and the, and the sacrifice. There is a wall that says that there is something standing between me and the sacrifice that, that they believe would take away sin or make me right with God. That that wall was there. So he says, what is standing in the way of me coming into Christ? Is there anything that's standing between me and God? Is there any reason that you can tell me, Philip, that I can't be baptized? And so he gave orders to stop the chariot. And then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away and the eunuch did not see him again, but he went on his way rejoicing. Now, this is incredible what's happening. They go down into the water. We, we know he's being immersed. We know that, first of all, the definition of the word is to immerse, to be baptized. We know that, but they both go down there. And he said, what's stopping me? Because right now, I want that wall to drop so that I can be with Jesus. Stops the, stops the chariot, and he goes, and now he is being united with Christ in baptism. This is incredible what's happening. He has traveled 1,500 miles. He's on his way back home, probably disappointed with what he saw and how he was treated. And now he has found the Messiah. This is good news. How incredible and wonderful it is for every person in here and watching online who understands that that is in Christ. And what a pity for those who let there be a wall. Because that wall does not need to be there between you and God. He wants that wall to come down. He says, you can come. You can be there. The Ethiopian found salvation in the desert. And he also he found hope and he found purpose and he found a future. He found Jesus. He found Jesus. He didn't even know about Jesus. And now he knows about Jesus. And now he's a follower of Jesus. And he's a disciple of Jesus. And he is forgiven in Jesus. He has a purpose in Jesus. This is good news. Oh, I don't want to turn those things away. I don't want us to ever walk away from Jesus. How sad it would be if people walked away from Christ and never came into Christ because it was too easy. Some of you know a story that I've shared before. I'll share it today because our audience has changed. But years ago when we were in Oklahoma, we were looking for a, a car to buy, and we ended up buying this minivan. And I met this guy, and and, and who was selling us the car, and, and uh, I don't remember his name now, but anyway, as we were talking, I could tell he had an accent of some type, and I said, well, you know, where are you from? And he said, I'm from Russia. 
I said, oh, that's, that's interesting. And I asked him about the car Lada, because Lada is an old Russian car, and they had a lot of those in Brazil when we lived there. He's like, how in the world? Because I'm always trying to find a way to get to faith somehow. And I say, really? I say, he said, how have you ever heard of a Lada? And I said, well, we lived in Brazil, and they were, they were everywhere. And he said, why were you in Brazil? Because I was a missionary in Brazil. My wife and I were missionaries there, so we get into the talk. And he said, oh, he said, you know, I'm a Christian. I said, really? He said, yes. I was baptized, and I was a part of a group called the Church of Christ in St. Petersburg. Really? And he starts, and I'm thinking, is he really telling me the truth? You know, he's just run a background check on me and knows who I am. <laughs> he starts putting out, throwing out names of people that I know. And he said, then I came to this university called Oklahoma Christian University. I went, I went to school there. And he said, I was a business major. You were. And so, I mean, it's just incredible. And I say, well, where do you go to church? He said, I, I, I don't really go to church. I said, well, well, why? He said, well, back in Russia, this was all before, before the wall came down. And he said, it was kind of exciting. He said, we'd have our Bibles and we'd put in a paper sack. And he said, we would say at the meeting, we'd meet in someone's apartment, and we would say, this week we're going to meet here, and next week we're going to meet over there. And so we would carry our Bibles. He even worked for the Communist Party. And he said, we would carry our Bibles from here to there, and, and it was so exciting. But he said, I got to the United States, and it's just so easy to be a Christian. And he said, I've just fallen away. Well, I only saw him one other time after that. We had 48-hour guarantee on our car. I said, if you're not at church on Sunday, I'm bringing this thing back. So he came that one Sunday. So we got him there at least once. Oh, sometimes it can be so, e so easy that we miss the point. But the Ethiopian, he gets it. Now, here's one of the most incredible things I think about Ethiopia. Whenever missionaries, to take the gospel, as they saw themselves, went to Ethiopia, there were already Christians there meeting, and nobody knows who got there first. I kind of think I might know who got there first. This man. Somehow, people were already worshiping a new Jesus. We've been in this series for a little while, and we've been talking about various desert experiences we go through. And a couple of you have said things to me ab about the desert. One of those, Jane Thompson, who's at this service, has said to me, don't forget that the desert also blooms. There are, there are flowers in the desert. And I want you to see this picture that beauty can be found in the bleakest places. Some of you this morning feel like you may be in a very bleak place. Could be the report from the doctor was not the report that you were hoping for. Could be what the boss said Friday was not what you had expected. It could be that the unemployment has run out. It could be that, that you lost your best friend. It could be that your marriage is, is on the rocks. It could be a thousand different things. We have folks that, that I know are, are here from other places. That Some of them, they don't want to be here. They, it's not that they don't like the United States, but they would like to go home where they're from. And this feels like a desert. But you know, there can be beauty even in the desert. Even in the worst, what you might imagine, the worst place in the world, you can find something that is good. And what the Ethiopian found out there in the middle of the desert was he found Jesus himself, the greatest of all beauty, and he found salvation and purpose and found a good life and what God wanted. What I think is interesting is that both men had a purpose in the desert. Do you remember that? Both men had a purpose. Well, one was to be helped. 
he's out there and he finds the Lord. And as he reads that scroll that day, he finds the Lord. But the other guy, he wasn't there to be helped. He was there to help. Philip was called by the Spirit to go into the desert. Do you remember last week we talked about Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert? Maybe you're in this desert right now, and it's not the, it doesn't feel very good. But maybe there's something good there. Maybe there's someone in the midst of your desert that shares a similar experience that needs your help. Maybe you can relate in a way that no one else can relate. No one else gets it, but you do because you've walked through it. You know what it's like. Matter of fact, you haven't walked through it. You are walking through it. And you can say, you know what, I can get through this because of God. And you can show that person the way to God. Or maybe the two of you can show each other as you walk that way. My question for us this morning is, what good can come from my desert? What good can there be? I remember when I was in college, there was a, a preacher that was, that was very well respected that I, that I knew and had, had high, high respect for. And he got cancer. He was older and he got cancer and he would go to his chemo treatments and, and there was kind of a group of people that would go, they would sit in their, in their chairs and all get chemo at the same time. And all at once they found out he was a preacher and he would say comforting things and all at once he became the great comforter of the group there because, you know, he, because of the comforter he had from Jesus, from, from Jesus. And then he baptized two people that were in his chemo group. And there he was in his desert. And he was bringing hope to other people in their desert. Is there any way that I could share the hope that I claim to have with other people in my desert? This morning, maybe, maybe, you are finding salvation in the desert. And you see Jesus in a way you've never seen him. And you are ready. You have so much faith in him right now. You're just saying, there is no wall that can stand between me and Jesus. I'm ready to be baptized right now. Let's get this on. I, I, get it on right now. Let's, I want to be baptized. He will wash away your sins, give you the gift of the Holy Spirit. He will give you purpose and salvation and all those wonderful things you have been looking for. To others of us, maybe we need prayers, maybe prayers of forgiveness, but maybe prayers just for courage. And, and the whole group will pray for you if you come forward, or you can write to us at elders at mcoc.org. The elders will pray for you if you say, I really want everybody to do that, to pray for me. The whole church will pray for you. We want to help each other. We're all in some type of desert right now. But God can lead us through if we will just turn to him. Come this morning as we stand and sing.